It's almost December, and you're probably nestled snugly into the holiday season. Visions of sugar plums, gingerbread, and snowmen, but not me. I'm still in spooky season. Truth be told, every season is spooky season for me. I listen to ghost, paranormal, and true crime podcasts year-round. I seek out scary movies to watch at night, all alone, no matter what time of year it is. It's always spooky season in my soul. Welcome to episode 173 of This Shit Works, a podcast dedicated to all things networking, relationship building, and business development. I'm your host, Julie Brown, speaker, author, and networking coach. And today I am joined by true crime historical fiction author Ryan Winter for a bit of a guilty pleasure episode for me because we're going to talk about all things true crime, serial killers, horror, and maybe a smidge of networking. Welcome to This Shit Works, your weekly no-nonsense guide to networking your way to more friends, more adventures, and way more success with your host, Julie Brown. Here we go. My guest today hails from South Louisiana, where he draws inspiration for storytelling and uses it as the backdrop for many of his works. And how could you not? Louisiana, with its rich history, architecture, voodoo, and spiritual traditions, Mardi Gras, carnival, haunted locations, swamps, and bayous, it's a location where the past seems to linger, making it the perfect setting for ghost stories, tales of the supernatural, true crime, and serial killers. Speaking of serial killers, have you heard of the Axeman of New Orleans? He was an American serial killer active in New Orleans, Louisiana, and surrounding communities from May 1918 to October 1919. The Axeman was never identified and the murders remain unsolved. This story was the inspiration for one of Ryan's books, Wake the Devil. I can't wait to get into it and actually a lot more with Ryan. So without further ado, Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you, Julie. Thank you. Thank you. So happy to be here. What a fantastic Let's start with opening. a simple question. Sure. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, I do. I am I am proud of my openings. People say they really like the openings. I do put a lot of research into the openings for it. So thanks for saying that. We'll start with a simple question. What led you to the world of true crime writing? And specifically, what drew you to the story of this serial killer, this Axeman? Mm, we have to go back to 2004. Uh, I was living in the French Quarter then. And uh, well, actually 2003. 2003. Now I'm thinking, God, it, the time, the time, the time. Uh, and I was working at a hotel doing concierge work and looking for a new writing project. And it sort of found me, you know, there's so many books about haunted history in New Orleans in general. And I was coming through all these and some of them were, you know, kind of outlandish. Some of them were kind of fun. And I'm like, wow, some of these really did happen, you know, after researching and all that. And New Orleanians, they love to talk. We love folklore. So you have to kind of take it with a grain of salt. But I kept seeing the Axe Man sort of like a footnote in several haunted history books about New Orleans. And I was like, God, who is this guy? And I would ask around a lot of older locals that might have known if they've ever heard of him. Because, I mean, this goes back to World War I. And a lot of people I mentioned it to had no idea what I was talking about. So I did a lot of research in this. Um, there's a beautiful building in the middle of the French Quarter close to where I was living uh, called the Williams Research Center. Beautiful building. It, everything in, on, going back to Jesus is on microfilm there. <laughs> it's a pretty, there's a lot of stuff there. I have found things I probably shouldn't have, but um, beautiful building. I was there and I was kind of researching it all. And the more I uncovered, the more I'm like, oh my gosh, what is this story? So it sort of found me. And I tell you something funny, Julie, the 
first time I started working on it, I had the weirdest, creepiest feeling. I remember when I finally sat down and I had all these printouts and all that. And I remember the first time working on it, and I was living right in the middle of the court. I lived right on Dumain Street. I guess I'm so close to Cafe Dumont, I could smell the sugar like constantly. So I was probably high just smelling the powdered sugar <laughs> while working on this. And I knew I had to do it because that first night of, of working, I almost can hear like a dragging sound. And all I kept thinking is an axe scraping outside of my balcony of my little uh, studio apartment. And I said, okay, so it's almost like he's uh, sitting at the door saying, okay, young man, don't screw this up. This is my story, you know? <laughs> so, and, and that's how, that's how it started. And from then on, it just enraptured me. I, I couldn't stop thinking about it for years. I was just, I was going to ask you, how long did you live with him? When I'm writing a keynote, and a lot of times I write about avatars in my keynotes, I always say that those people <laughs> live in my brain. Like, they're, they're my friend. Maybe the X-Men isn't your friend. But, like, they are my friend when I'm writing, and I want to do a service to them when I'm writing a keynote around an avatar, around a business professional. Like, how long, long did he live in your head? That's a very good question. Um, yeah, if, since then, I have attempted to write the book four or five times over the years. And then, of course, um, Katrina happened and put a damp on a lot of things. And it took me a while to, to dig out the notes again. And I remember in, I think this was, going to say maybe 2010-ish. And it was a very, very cold winter in New Orleans. And I remember hearing the ice hit the, the window and all that. I'm like, God, it is freezing out there. And of course, I'm in a shotgun house. may sit off the ground. So I'm freezing my ass off, you know, even with the heat blast. And my roommate had went to work that night. So I'm by myself. And I see this is probably a good night to start working on this book again. And sure enough, don't you know, I'm probably a couple paragraphs in and I can hear that scraping sound again. And it brought back that, that early memory. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> and I'm, I'm boldly going into this and I can think in my head, he's going, okay, bro, second attempt, try to do this. Mm -hmm. Don't you know about, I'm going to say probably about midnight. I'm, I'm a little ways in this. I'm spooking myself. My roommate comes in and I jump 10 feet out of my chair. <laughs> and I'm yeah. like, oh my, I'm like, you idiot. He's like, what are you doing? I said, what are you doing? And we just don't have this yeah. moment. And it was funny because right around that time, they had li the Lizzie Borden movie came out with uh, Christina Ricci, which I love. You know, I, I love the story of Lizzie Borden. And uh, we should know that it's yeah. right there in Fall River, right? Yeah. I know. And, I've uh, been there. I've been to the house and Oh, <laughs> I want to go so bad. And I had just read a book about that. That movie had come out. So, I mean, I'm really thinking about act murdering, man. It, it's in my brain. And, you know, ever since then, it's, I, I've always put it down, come back, put it down, come back. But yeah. finally, around a couple of years later, I had left New Orleans to go take care of my mom. She, she was suffering from breast cancer. So I went down to where she was, which is about 45 minutes south of the city. So I'm still in the vicinity, but not in the city. And uh, I started it again, and I, I felt like I had carte blanche. I think he finally said, okay, go. <laughs> and, and so ever since, mm -hmm. I could say since 2003, he's really been dancing around in my head. And oh, after the book is published, I'm still, it still lingers. I still feel like he's mm -hmm. watching. Who is this guy? What is he? And why he picked me to do it? Because when I started, there was not many books about him. And since there's been some really yeah. great, good nonfiction book, a good research, which would have been helpful, you know, and then he's was mentioned um, as sort of a storyline in uh, American Horror Story, the one coven and all that. So I'm like, wow. So he's oh. getting some kind of mention, um, which of course they did very loosely. But yeah. So I was right. like, oh man, I've got to do this. You know, it's, it's almost like he's saying, come on, come on, come on. 
So he's been dancing around my head since then. You know, it's been a long time. That night that you just described with the sort of sleet hitting the wind windows, it was very Mary Shelley of you. <laughs> the night she wrote Frankenstein. Oh, wow. I didn't yeah. even think about that. You know, yeah, the night she wrote Frankenstein. Because that was a storm. They were all hungry oh, down right. in the storm. And yeah, that was a competition. Yeah, yeah. Like, who can write the best horror story, ghost story? And, of course, Mary wrote it. Um, sitting the around the, the um, fire. And I'm sitting around the wall heater while it's banging. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when I think about true crime genre as it is today, it can be easy to think that it's a new phenomenon. Like it's very recently gained popularity, but that's not that that's not it. I mean, it's been captivating audiences for centuries as a genre from Jack the Ripper to modern day Netflix documentaries. Like Its appeal is deeply rooted in our human psychology for one reason or another. And why? In your opinion, as somebody who lives in this genre, why do you think true crime intrigues so many people in, to such a great extent? I tell you what, the first book that I can remember reading um, when I was a kid and when I was growing up, I was able to watch a lot of horror movies and stuff like that, um, much to the... the <laughs> The disagreement of my mother who hated it, but my aunts and uncles, they loved it. You know, they, oh, come, come watch movies. You know, so I saw this. So my poor mother, mm -hmm. you know, she tried to pull me away from horror. So she gave me the book, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson, the, the beautiful classic. And I guess she mm -hmm. thought it was benign enough to make me think, like, well, it's not going to be too bad. And that was the first time I think the words uh, from a book just jumped out at me. And, and the book scared the shit out of me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's. And I think looking back on it, I'm like, why did I like it? And it's that sort of innate human existence that we try to keep hidden that we know is there. Because what he, mm -hmm. you know, what Stevenson tried to do, he's talking about that. He's talking about the dark side of humanity and how we can be this person. But then here's this monster in the closet and some of us are good at hiding it, and some of us let it roam free. And so from the beginning mm -hmm. of time, it's like that. And I think to me, that's a great example of why people think it's, it's fascinating because it, it is you. It is a reflection of you. And that's scary you know, to know that that mm -hmm. is part of humanity, that we do kill, you know, or that we do have these yeah. dark feelings. And I, I love that. It's, it, there's a lot of exploration there. Psychology has always been based on those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Would you be surprised to learn that of all of the true crime podcasts, books, documentaries, 68% of the people who consume that genre are women, 68%. That doesn't surprise me. It, and it's funny because the two books that I published, the first people to buy them were all my aunts and my girl cousins and all my girlfriends. None of, none of my guy friends that, you know, after finally, you know, and they do read, but it was always my aunts like, oh, I love this. I love, they were always my biggest fans. They still are. It's crazy. They would, they would buy them up yeah. first. Um, but I think you look back on all these famous or these infamous, should I say, people like Ted Bundy, Kaczynski and all that. And some of these guys are really good looking guys. So I think these women see that. And it's funny that they're blinded by this, this persona that these people kill people, you know, and some of them, even like right. Ted Bundy, all these women that love him. But I'm like, he killed women. You know, it's crazy. So, yeah. And there's different reasons why I think they're really attracted to stuff like that. I remember reading an article by Catherine Ramsland, who I really, I've, I've always enjoyed her work. She's a true crime writer and uh, professor. Um, and she writes about all kinds of kooky stuff like vampirism and ghosts and all that. 
And she mentions things like she talks about that, about um, this sort of a, they call it the Bonnie and Clyde syndrome. I think part of it is the need to know why, you know, I think our, we don't understand. We, yeah, we who sure. don't have the capability of doing that have a desire to understand how anybody could do that, which sort of leads me into my next statistic, which I thought was really interesting that, you know, women make up a minority of law enforcement agents. And yet 78% of forensic scientists in the United States are women. Interesting. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. That's that's interesting. And so, yeah, I think it's like the women's need to like, I need to understand this. I need to get into the mind of this person. I need to know why they did this. Or also helping the victim. Like uh, the victim now doesn't have a voice. So forensic scientists will be the voice of that victim as they try to figure out what happened to that person and make sure whoever did it is held accountable. Very true. And people always ask, if you weren't a writer, what would you be? I said, I'd love to be a homicide detective. And for that reason, exactly that you just said, to be able to clear these cases, to give some relief to these victims and these families that are victimized by this, because Mm -hmm. you have this particular victim that dies, but then you have the family that's left with this the rest of their life. You know, Mm -hmm. that's really, it's a greedy thing. And um, that's something I've always wanted to do. And also the, the curiosity of it. Just as you mentioned, the, the curiosity of what makes someone tick like that. How does that happen? What, mm-hmm. why, how does it start? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I think when I think about networking, I, I joke a lot when I'm on stage. That if you don't know what to talk about in a networking event, just ask people what their favorite murder is. Like what their favorite <laughs> unsolved crime is. Like I was at a dinner party. Uh, yeah, it's I mean, it is morbid, but I'm like, I was at a dinner party once and I said, OK, and I was in charge. I was facilitating it in the networking. And so I I said to the entire table, OK, OK, what is one unsolved crime that you, you would give anything to know the answer? And like immediately people are like, John Binet, OK, JFK, like like people <laughs> knew exactly what true crime, what murder, what unsolved yeah. mystery literally lives rent-free in their brain every day. Yeah, I I can imagine bringing that up and the room wouldn't be silent whatsoever. You can bring up anything, any kind of topic and people, uh, Uh but you're right. And it's true. It's, it's always been a fascination for people. It's, it's so bizarre. I mean, once they started mentioning the Axeman and things like that, and people that reading after reading my book they're like oh so i started reading books about jack the ripper and oh i started reading about these cannibal killers in 20s germany and all that i'm like what and these are people that don't normally read horror or do that but it's like it opens this really you know this pandora's box of stuff it's crazy yeah we all love to talk about murder (laughs) which is also i think we should talk about like let's strike a balance between sort of our morbid curiosity and ensuring we don't glorify the genre as a true crime writer how do you balance that like i i i'm morbidly curious i have morbid curiosity i'm very interested but i do not want to glorify this genre i want i want to discover it and expose it but not glorify it yeah because at the heart of it someone someone died someone was killed and so you have to think fantasy or not that's the reality of reality that's what happens and for me, you know, when I, when I told Wake the Devil, I told the facts. I went in there and I did the research and 
not at any point do I say, wow, how wonderful he had this great power. No, he was terrifying. And that's how I painted him. And my main character, the fictional part of the book, because it is historical fiction, um, I made it a young Italian boy who's sort of, you know, walking through all these events because that's who he initially started killing was members of the Italian community. And just to see the fear and just to walk down the street and think, wow, I'm, I could be next kind of point. And I always kept the victims in mind. I even went on uh, one mm -hmm. point a few years ago, I was visiting New Orleans from Mardi Gras and uh, I had some friends from Canada and I was telling them the story and all that. And they had bought the books. Of course, it came up and I said, you know, the graves are still there and you know, the locations are still there. I went to the graves there and just to feel that sort of that humanity, that loss of what really happened. Mm -hmm. So you have to see it from the point of view of the victims, how that feel, the terror, you know, things like that. And that that's mm -hmm. how I try to get around. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, to switch gears just slightly, like yesterday I posted a video on LinkedIn or Instagram, I can't remember, about, hey, we got to get out there and do in-person networking. Like we got to take off our yoga pants, put on big girl pants, put on our shoes and get out to in-person networking events. And you sent me a message and you were like, this, this rings with me because none of my friends want to go back out into the world right now. And you said, you mentioned something about you are writing a new book that also might sort of dovetail nicely with this conversation about getting back out into the world. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I've noticed, I mean, since uh, COVID, I find people fall back into that comfortability like, oh yeah, you know, let's stay home now. I, I really wish there, there was some way we can start dragging people back out again. Because no one wants to go out and everybody I know, it's, well, I'm playing video games. I'm watching Netflix. So I'm like, oh my gosh, how about we just go out? Uh, we can go to the movie. It's sort of like the gay uh, dating scene right now. And everything just seems to be on apps. And it's driving me nuts because, mm -hmm. you know, you text, 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 but that doesn't mean anything. After a while, everybody starts to sound yeah. like an AI robot. You know, and that's not any fun. You don't know who <laughs> you're talking to you know you know it's yeah. like i get that and i love it because i would talk to people I'm like hey today i'm going to write my book blah 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 and the answer is like wow i'm glad you're writing your book good for you i'm like not even asked what it's about nothing you know what i'm saying it's this weird sort of right you know, distant kind of coldness and i don't understand that and it's very prevalent right now and it's driving me nuts and people will talk and they'll be on these profiles and they don't even call you they just want to stay here so it's like well how about we talk on the phone how about we meet up no no i don't want to do that i'm like well this is this is a dating app, you know, and so it, it's things like yeah. that. So, you know, it's it's this crazy distance now. And um, it, it bugs me because it feels like I never see anybody anymore. Even like some of my closest friends, all they want to do is text. I'm like, why are you texting me these huge paragraphs when I can just talk to you? You know, and I you know, maybe I'm old school, but still right. there's some disconnect there. And you know, I don't like the way it's going. And so this um, I basically uh, did a sci fi I'm doing a sci fi story. And it's it's around um, that concept of this young man who's constantly on these apps, never wants to meet anybody. And so I, I, this this book kind of touches upon that and has a bit of a sci fi bend. But um, this young man is sort of this person that I see on these apps all the time. And it kind of makes me think, why? Why do they think this? Why is this like this? You've hit on something here with this this gay dating app as a microcosm of just the general population and way in the way we communicate now or the way we lack of communicating now. Yeah. Uh, I was married before match.com came out. So <laughs> I 
never been on a dating app. I didn't. I don't know whether you swipe left or right or up. You're or one down. of the lucky I don't ones. Know how it works. You're, you're one of the lucky ones. <laughs> yes. When you're, people you're say, pre-AI. "How did you meet your husband?" I said the good old fashioned. Yes. When people say, "How'd you meet your husband?" I said the good old fashioned way. Hammered in a bar. Like, Damn right. That's how you Damn did. Damn right. There was no false advertising. I knew exactly what he looked like. I knew how tall he was. I knew what he sounded like. I knew what he weighed. Like, there's no, you, he was right there. Exactly. No filters. I mean, you can't, you know, you can't fake it. There you are. And see, I love that. It's little things like, you know, the sound of someone's voice, even, you know, just, just even talk on the phone or video chat. Come on. And if it's one little flaw and boom, they block. And you never hear from these people. And to me, I they don't. I don't think a lot of people understand yeah. how psychologically damaging that is. Just especially some of these young guys. You know, I, I try not to block anybody unless they're being. You know just what? Really, I think really you. Much. I think you're really opening up something here because I'm doing a lot of uh, co- talking to colleges and universities about networking and business development, and relationship building, and I had never thought of the social ramifications of blocking of whatever people are doing, swiping left on you and you don't hear from them of ghosting of cancel culture on people's abilities to feel like they can build relationships. I think there's something here. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because you get into these really great conversations and you might even video chat maybe once or have a phone call and Mm -hmm. everything's going great for maybe two weeks. Boom. They disappear. What is that? You know, I don't understand that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we ended on this talk. I I mean, yes, true crime, my guilty pleasure. Yes, I fully admit it. (laughs) Obviously, networking is my love. So I'm glad we could meld the two together in this interview. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it's well, you're a whiz, Julie. I mean, come on. I expected nothing less. You're amazeball. So. I knew, I knew you'd spin it some <laughs> well, kind of what? way. You're here. That's just what you yeah. do. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I, I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Oh, me too. Thank you for having me. Thank you. This, this has been great. If you're a true crime enthusiast like me, you're not alone. This genre continues to evolve and captivate audiences around the world. But we have to remember to approach it with a sense of responsibility and empathy for the real-life people and stories behind the cases. Empathy. That may actually be why women are drawn to the genre in the first place. Some experts argue that women's interests in true crime may be connected to females' generally higher levels of empathy. Dr. Howard Foreman, a forensic psychiatrist at Montefiore Medical Center, said that empathy may lead to true crime being more interesting to women than men simply because if you empathize more with the victim, it may be more relevant to you and more gripping. Also, Higher levels of empathy in women may also trigger greater curiosity about the backgrounds of the killers and the criminals. Also, true crime stories often center on the quest for justice. We all desire a world where the bad guys are caught and the innocent are protected. The journey from the crime to justice for that crime is a compelling narrative arc that provides closure and reassures us that the system can work. It's a powerful storytelling element that taps into our sense of justice and order. Whatever the reason, 
Our fascination with true crime doesn't seem to be waning, and unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be an end in sight to the commitment of these crimes either. Not an easy transition, but okay. On to the drink of the week, which just goes to show that this genre is everywhere. There is an actual book on Amazon called Mixology and Murder, cocktails inspired by infamous serial killers, cold cases, cults, and other disturbing true crime stories. And this recipe I'm featuring is from that book. It's called The Blood and Glove Cocktail, named after the incredibly frustrating O.J. Simpson murder trial that was practically determined by one bloody glove. Remember, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Here's what you're going to need. Three-fourths ounce of scotch, three-fourths ounce of sweet vermouth, three-fourths ounce of cherry liqueur, three-fourths ounce of O.J. Get it? O.J.? Pour all ingredients into a cocktail shaker with ice, cover and shake for about 20 seconds, strain into our martini glass, and serve with an orange peel. All right, friends, that's all for this week. If you like what you heard today, please leave a review and subscribe to the podcast. Also, please remember to share the podcast to help it reach a larger audience. If you want more Julie Brown, you can find my book, This Shit Works, on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. You can find me on LinkedIn at Julie Brown PD. Just let me know where you found me when you reach out. I'm Julie Brown underscore BD on the Instagram, or you can just pop on over to my website juliebrownbd.com. Until next week. Cheers. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a tip. And remember, you can unapologetically be who you authentically are and still be wildly successful. That's a fact. See you next week on This Shit Works. This Shit Works.